And MSA provides a framework or a backdrop for two businesses to do business and have many deals kind of on a rolling basis. It defines the rules of the game, just simply, right? This is how we're going to play. This is what I expect of you and what you should expect of us. Welcome to the Land Department Podcast. The state of land and energy as we see it. Brent, we moved to over the ears. Looking good, man. I mean, maybe I'm legit. I'm more of an imposter than anything, but I got the buds <laughs> for it now. I'm, I'm sad. I'm Looking the part, man. Looking the part. Well, this uh, is where it all goes downhill. <laughs> well, um, we could say earmuffs. I'm sure there's plenty of situations where uh, MSAs have had needed some earmuffs in the room because it went wrong so bad. But uh, we're talking about master service agreements, and we've got Molly Pila with us. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. How are you guys today? We're great. We're great. Doing Brent, you great. met Molly. You've probably known her a while, but I know you you mentioned that you were at a presentation she did on MSAs, and you wanted to have her on. Um, how did you? Yeah. yeah, certainly met Molly. You know, we've got friends over at Oliva Gibbs, uh, Zach and Brad, and we've all been um, good buddies, worked together in the, in the, you know, oil and gas title side of things. And we're kind of business strategy buddies. We talk about all kinds of stuff, what we're doing with our companies. And so um, met Molly, oh, probably six or eight months ago at an event with uh, Zach and Brad. And then uh, they put this article out and I said, wow, that's a great topic. It's kind of like your greens. You know, you, you have to go through it and have to take them and eat it, uh, but you don't necessarily have to love it. But uh, it's very important. It touches for, for landmen, especially on the brokerage side and ultimately through field landmen that work in the, in the, in the space and for and through brokers, it affects everything they do. And every in-house landman in large part is whether they realize it or not, or have to deal with it. Uh, the work that we're doing for them is subject to a master service agreement. So, um, thought it was relevant and maybe something that not everybody gets to touch or deal with. So Molly's going to share all her wisdom from, uh, litigating when these things go wrong and advising her clients, uh, on you know, what they need to include and what they don't, um, from her, her perspective. And then I'll share, you know, from, from a kind of a, a service provider's perspective in the land space, the things that we look for and considerations that might apply to the work that we do as landmen. So yeah, uh, well, it's going to be exhilarating. <laughs> well, Molly, we were talking a little bit before this and I had asked if you had any stories of MSAs going right and going wrong. And you mentioned that you really only hear when it goes wrong. Um, so if a good MSA is executed, you'll never really hear about it, but what is an MSA? Give us the definition, make it really, uh, clear for us. And then what a successful one should do. Sure. Um, so an MSA provides a framework or a backdrop for, uh, two, two businesses to do come uh, to do business and have many deals kind of on a rolling basis. So it's, a it's setting a baseline. Um, and then as jobs change, depending on, you know, what's needed, depending on if you're a different tracks, different well sites or anything, uh, it allows you to ch make the subtle changes that you need to for, for as the, as the job changes without having to renegotiate starting soup to nuts, uh, on the whole deal. You've already got the backdrop with these, you know, the set of terms. Uh, that, that's always going to be the framework. And then it's just kind of tweaking the, the, the five points of it specific to various jobs. Mm -hmm. And how often are these updated in general? I mean, obviously it varies partnership to partnership, but how often should they be updated? Well, fair enough. Uh, you know, it, it, sure. Um, if your businesses change, um, a lot of times, you know, companies will change uh, operating and, and there'd be different divisions and different arms. You certainly want to make sure that you have an MSA with the right entity um, and, the, and the other entity that you're dealing with, if that changes. You know, I, I mean, practically, you know, every three to five years, you know, because you'll want to change different things. Uh, interest rates may change or, uh, you know, you may decide that, you know, hey, we initially agreed to 45 days for payment and that doesn't really work for our business and so we need to change it to 30. And so, um, and that may be across the board. Uh, you certainly can do it with any individual entity, but you may need to make some business decisions that need to change with that. Um, you know, laws are always changing. Cases are always coming out to interpret these things and everything. And you don't want to have 
you know, old inapplicable language, you know, that you're trying to come up with or, you know, things that if the court says, by the way, this doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, well, that's a good, that's a real good time to start looking at it and, and making those changes. Uh, and then, of course, you know, one of the things that, that you know, we recommend in, in your MSA is that it ha you put a term in there. Look, you can put the term for 10 years if you want to. Um, but uh, and certainly you would want to uh, take a look at them before it expires or or shortly thereafter. Yeah, I mean, what we tend to see in the land space, you know, as land brokers is um, about half of them are three to five year terms. The other half are so long as services are being provided. And that's the ones that'll get you. You know, that's how they come to us. You don't want a perpetual agreement, right? Because uh, oftentimes as a service provider, you're bound by certain obligations, confidentiality, audit access, all those things are, are parts of those things that when you sign off, you're agreeing to abide by them. So if you work for a client for a year and don't work for them for 10 years, but you still have a service agreement that has all those binding, um, you know, restrictions or yeah. conditions, those things you, you don't want that lingering over you. Um, some of our clients modify them yearly. Others, it's a three to five year cycle. And some of them just, they're perpetual. Um, so that's where all that termination language, all the kind of the things that linger, you want to really make sure you have a term on those lingering things, if you can help it. Well, let's dive into a little bit more of the advantages of an MSA. We're going to talk about some disadvantages as well, but for advantages, why does it make sense to do an MSA with a partner that you envision doing projects with long-term? Efficiency is probably the easiest one. Um, again, it, it prevents you from having to shoot to nuts, you know, start over at square one. You know, if, you, if you're already 80% of the way there, 90% of the way there, because you have a master service agreement with, with contracts that you've already, or, or terms that you've already agreed upon that are good for this project, that makes sense for this project, then it's a function of, okay, it's going to take us, you know, four days and we need six guys and this is going to be the hourly rate and that that's what's going to happen for this. And you don't have to worry about when payments going to be made and, you know, indemnity provisions and, the, you know, much what bro was talking about of, you know, confidentiality provisions and non-solicitation, you know, all of those things, those are already in place. Those are going to continue from job to job to job to job. And all you've got to do is deal with the specifics of this particular job. Uh, and it just, it allows it allows work to flow much faster and, and keep, you know, I, I don't need to tell you guys time is money, particularly in the oil patch. So it allows for that efficiency and allows a little real world acknowledgement that things move quickly. Yeah. It's, it defines the rules of the game just simply, right? This is how we're going to play. This is what I expect of you and what you should expect of us. Um, it allows a mechanism and a structure that allows you to adjust your rates to set scope. Um, to, you know, maybe you're working in multiple basins for a company, uh, and you have a, a rate schedule or maybe an expense reimbursement schedule for, for landmen that varies from basin to basin, location to location. Um, if you have that MSA in place, you have a structure that allows you to set the rules so that this is what I am allowed to bill. This is what you agree to be billed. And there's no argument, you know, we've had the dis discussion it's done at the beginning. And, um, you know, this is how we're going to operate. It also is good for, you know, it, it, the insurance requirements and all the other things that we're going to go through today, just kind of, as we kind of dissect a standard MSA, uh, to know what, what's expected of you as a service provider and what that company's standard operating procedures are going to be with respect to their, their vendors. So, mm -hmm. uh, lots of pros there, you know, yeah. we like to do it cause it gets that out of the way <laughs> to set the rules. These are the collections. These are the billing requirements. Uh, so many of, of our EMP clients have very sophisticated uh, billing requirements. You know, you have to use this system and reference these numbers and put this code. And uh, if you are relying on a bunch of landmen to go back and forth to give that information, sometimes, it, you know, you might not get it right. Um, so when you yeah. talk about pros, that's definitely it. Well, I'm sure there's also a level of stickiness too. Like if you have to go through that process with so many different brokers over and over and over again, you're going to use the one that you don't have to go through with it again because you've already have it in place. Right. Um, yeah. and then you're saving probably a lot of money because once you have it in place, you're not having to do that over and over on project to project. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so let's talk about more of the pitfalls. Like when does it not make sense to do an MSA? 
Yeah, you know, if it's a if it's a one time kind of deal, it may not make sense to do it. Um, if it, it, you know, uh, if it's a very short term kind of deal that's almost like an invoicing, uh, you know, it it may just it may not make sense, right? There, all the time you got to make business decisions. Um, look, these these MFAs can get complex. They can be, you know, dense. Um, you know, sometimes you can uh, agree to things that you don't want to agree to simply because you're like, nope, let's just, let's get our guys out there. Let's get them going. Like, you know, let's start doing it. Um, you know, if it's not a company that you anticipate really a long-term relationship with the, initially, it may not make sense. Of course, if that leads to more things, then, then it, then it could make sense. Um, you know, and, and particularly with some of the larger companies that exist, um, you know, these deals can be very one-sided. Uh, and they may not be so flexible Very. on on terms. And it will be either you agree to this and do it the way that I say you're going to do it or or you're not going to be out here uh, for for my job. And so, you know, there's uh, there are a lot of there are some things to consider as far as that goes about whether or not uh, how important that is to to your particular business and what you're trying to do. Yeah, there's the the disadvantage to having an MSA and then there's whether or not you want to enter into one. Right. And, and those are the business cases. <laughs> um, and it, it goes back to what you have to subject yourself to, you know, if, if you're running a good business and you're, you're, you know, trying to operate under best practices, if you sign an MSA, you, you're agreeing that you're going to live by it. Right. And it's something we do, you know, I, I go through these things and they're painful. And a 70 page MSA is damn near waterboarding. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how much is on the other end. And especially when, you know, uh, it's a particular client who's got a, a big stick and they're going to tell you what your earnings are going to be. And maybe that isn't economic for you. Um, and there are times when we review these things and say, look, I'm going to have to spend an extra 20 grand a year for your, your insurance requirements. And you're offering me a two week job with one landman. That just doesn't make sense. You know, financial sense. For us to be able to adhere to this agreement for what's potentially out there um you know as far as times that uh, a scenario where having an msa is a disadvantage uh, from a broker standpoint it's the small jobs you know you don't want to sign a service agreement that has non-compete provisions and and all these non-solicitation all these different provisions for a small you know um lease check over one section and the hottest part of new mexico right you're going to subject yourself to potential non-compete on in the middle of this area for maybe not that much uh, return. So you still do the work, just don't have a service agreement in place. Uh, and, and in writing, you don't have those things that you're subject to. So um, they can be restrictive in that sense. And there's maybe times that we say, you know what, let's just do the work. If you're not willing to strike a non-compete, then we'll just, we'll do this old school. <laughs> yeah. Molly, you had mentioned earlier that a lot of these MSAs with larger companies can be pretty one-sided. What are some examples of that one-sidedness? I've seen it again. I, I only know when they don't work. No, it's different when they do work, right? Because that uh, it was a problem. But uh, yeah, I, I reviewed one recently from a large company that that said basically, if uh, you know, if they weren't paid in a timely manner. Um, if the invoices weren't paid in a timely manner, they were then they had the option to take a lien out on the company's accounts receivable, uh, the entire accounts receivable. And I thought that is a very drastic uh, measure for it. And uh, you know, I'm really fortunate and glad that our our client asked us to review that because I, I struck that language expecting some pushback, um, and and they didn't. But uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering now how many people have just signed that and are now have, have now subjected, uh, you know, their entire business basically to a lien so that this company can get paid. And, you know, I, I don't I don't know how many of you guys have dealt with liens previously. They are not that super easy to unwind uh, necessarily. And it's it's judicial intervention in all of these things. And then, of course, it's not. You then it damages your reputation within the community of like we had to go put a lien on them to get paid. Well, you could be talking about four dollars. You could be talking about four million dollars. Like there's a there's a whole span in there, and of course everything you know the details don't become so important. It's just I had to put a lien on ABC Company because they didn't pay me, uh, which they were entitled to do. But uh, you know it, it's things like that that can be very very one sided. You know the the legislature has worked to 
balance those out, particularly with indemnity provisions. You know, some of these old MSAs used to be, you're going to be responsible for everything out there, whether it's my fault, your fault, the dog's fault, the wind's fault, anybody's fault. It's all you if you want to be out there. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, the, the legislature and the courts have, have balanced that out and require, you know, reciprocal indemnity and in that I'll take care of mine, you take care of yours. And there's got to be things that are back and forth for that to even be enforceable. And if they don't meet that, then, you know, it's not going to be anything. Yeah, they used to be they used to be pretty oppressive. And uh, waterboarding is a good waterboarding is a good analogy, I think. <laughs> Molly, that's thought that they used to be oppressive. They still are. In some cases, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a, you know, I mean, things that we see that are very one-sided and really for the most part, most of the clients that we work with, and we've kind of reviewed a hundred of these things, 200 of them over the last 10 years, um, that generally folks are willing to work with you, uh, where it's one-sided is whenever they slap a piece of paper in front of you and say, take it or leave it. Um, and there's no practical discussion or conversation even willing to be had where, Hey, this, this service agreement that you put in front of me is clearly drafted for a frat crew and not a land service firm. Right? So you're telling me I have to comply with OSHA requirements. Um, you know, HS and E requirements. Uh, I've got to have a safety program in place to have a landman sitting in their room running title on Inverus. Um, you know, those things that's very one-sided. It's not practical. Um, they won't allow us to strike it because the, you know, their posture is we don't accept changes, you know, or it's going through a procurement group. That's not knowledgeable. Um, maybe they're an international procurement group that handles procurement for, a, a you know, Apache, you know, or something like that. And they're looking at a global sense, uh, versus you know, a land company doing land work in the lower US, lower 48. Um, so, you know, things like that. One-sided is payment terms. You know, when they, you know, say you have to bill us once a month and it's on a net 60 or net 90, I've even seen. Well, that's, that's significant if you're a smaller group that's having to float that payroll for a long time before you're ever going to get paid. And rarely do companies actually pay when they say they're going to pay. So you just tack on another 15 or 20 days to the back end of that. Um, so, you know, that, and the third one, that's a big, has a big effect on landmen. It's just the insurance requirements. Um, you know, some of them have just crazy amounts of insurance that are above and beyond really the exposure that they would, um, would have for land services for doing land work. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, if you, if you can't get any movement on there, there's times you're going to have to pull out the pocketbook if you want the business, you know, to make sure you can adhere. Yeah. Well, all in all, it hurts. <laughs> At some of, you know, yeah, but it is what it is. And that's the business uh, decision. You know, as a business case, as a service provider, you know, do, do I want, is there enough on the back end? You know, is the mm-hmm. carrot big enough? And then you make those decisions as to whether you're, you know, can comply and are willing to take the risk if you're not in compliance, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about this in the past, but if someone's so one-sided in their MSA and they're not willing to change it, is that really a someone you want to partner with and align with, right? Yeah. The unfortunate thing is sometimes the land person you're working with is a great, reasonable, practical person. They don't have, and maybe the whole land department, but they just maybe don't have any weight within the company, you know, to actually champion, you know, your request and and champion the change. So it's sometimes just out of their hands, but you got to make a hard decision at times. Yeah. Well, we've referenced uh, an article already that's on the the website we'll put in the show notes but in there there's a really great checklist that i kind of want to walk through molly and just get your kind of feedback on what to look for what to be aware of as you go through uh drafting or reviewing an msa um so uh maybe you have it pulled up if not i can kind of run through each one but you know as we get into uh let's maybe start with the term what what is something important when you're looking at a term for an msa we've kind of covered that a little bit already but anything that we've missed no, I mean, you just want to be specific about it. And, you know, again, it's whatever makes sense in a particular situation. It's not as much as the MSA is kind of a, a one size fits all a little bit, but you need to make sure it makes sense for the two companies that are entering into this MSA and what makes sense for for, for that. And so you may have, uh, you know, in your company, you may have, say you have five MSAs, 
One may be three to five years. One may be at the perpetuity, although I'm with Brent. I don't love that. One may be for a year and one may be, you know, for, for six years or something as far as that goes. It depends on what makes sense. It depends on what, you know, kind of your needs are and everything. Um, but it should have a term that is in there that is defined uh, and not uh, so long as services are being provided is a little bit our, is our recommendation um, simply because it gets very vague. It's very, you know, well, you know, if you if they buy a part from you, does that count? Uh, you know, the, these types of things. And it can uh, be binding, even though you don't intend it to be. Um, so just put and put a number in there. Um, I think most folks are pretty reasonable about that, but just put a number in there. Mm. Yeah, Brett, do you see an advantage yeah. to going shorter or longer in term? I mean, there's not a there's not an issue with going long. You know, it's a matter of if you go too short, then you're potentially you know you get into into working and you're active and you're just in the business. You know, the flywheel of of what you're doing with that company, and you just kind of sight unseen, you forget about it. So you don't want it to be burdensome from a maintenance standpoint. Uh, but again, you don't want it to be in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I like personally that three to five years, I can throw a calendar, you know, reminder on my calendar five years from now and it'll pop up one day, you know, and hopefully we're still around and I can call yeah. somebody and show them how responsible we are to monitor <laughs> our MSAs. Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess the next one is scope of work. And uh you know, I can take that from, from our standpoint, it's, it's sure. pretty important. And, and the reason being, at least in our boilerplate MSA and really kind of what the standard industry landman industry non-compete is, um, typically goes something like this, uh, 12 months from the date services are completed in a, under a given work order, you won't, um, negotiate for purchase leases, minerals, royalties, whatever on the lands that are subject to this service agreement or subject to a work order. Basically what they're trying to achieve and rightfully so is you're not going to receive confidential information about a prospect area, work it on their behalf, receive payment on their behalf, and then come back and either a work it for another company, a competing company at a later time, uh, or go in there and buy minerals under their project. Uh, you receive a tremendous amount of confidential information on these projects and uh, the company needs to ensure that they're protected from you going and competing against them with their own information and know-how. Um, so that's the boilerplate of what you see. And there's some nuance there. We always try to expand on that to account for scope of work um, and really define what the creation of a non-compete area is. Um, and, and that scope of work is a big part of that. If you have those limitations, uh, for instance, we don't want to create a non-compete uh, for doing a lease check or doing a, a filing for you or a mail out over, you know, an entire, you know, water flood unit, for instance, um, that takes us three weeks. <laughs> it's cursory in nature. We get a list, we mail some stuff out for you. We don't want to be subject to a non-compete over a large area. Due diligence is another example. These projects covered counties at times. We don't want to subject ourselves to that. So, uh, the scope of work is important because it should tie to a, a, a well, if you have a well-drafted non-compete scope should be an important part of that. There should be definitions of what's going to create that non-compete and what's not. So it's a big one for us. I jumped in on that one because it's, it's important. No, and you're absolutely right. And you know, look at the end of the day, right? This is a contract and you know, if, and when things go wrong, courts are going to look at it and going to, you know, the vague and ambiguous terms are going to be ruled against he who writes it. Um, and so specificity and, and clearly defining the parameters in which the parties are able to work and operate in different things, uh, you know, are, are, it's very important. And that way everybody knows, I mean, you know, Brent, you said it perfectly at the beginning. It's the rules of the game. I play any game you want me to play. I just need to know what the rules are. And everybody needs to play by the same rules because then we know how how to move forward and what's going to happen. And so it's just setting those parameters and being very clear about it and being very intentional about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that your contract, you should mean what you say, say what you mean. Um, and if you mean it to apply to this project for this work for, you know, much what, Red's talking about, but not for, I need you to mail out some notice notices. Let's put that in there. Let's, let's make sure that we're clear about what it is that we're talking about so that everybody knows where we're going and everybody knows what, what, what the rules are. Yeah. That's Certainly. great. 
we could dive into that a little bit more. Typically, yeah. you see that in the confidentiality portion is where you see you non-compete. Can expand on that when we get to it a little more. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and speaking of kind of the rules of the game um, and knowing what you're trying to achieve, performance metrics is also the, another area in the MSA that we want to review. What are some things that we're looking to really be clear about in the performance metrics section? I mean, basically what's okay and what's not okay of what it is that I'm expecting your work to provide to me. Now, look, I mean, you know, it, it, particularly for landmen, if you're hunting down and trying to get, you know, track title down and everything else, well, obviously you're only as good as the information that you get, right? And so it's that, but there should be some, you know, parameters around that of what the expectation is. Did you Google John Smith, uh, Shelby County, Texas, and say, well, there's nobody there and move on. Or, well, there's 50 and I can't decide it, which one's which. So I'm out. You know, there's there's some integrity that that's involved in that. And it's what it is. But do you have to go knock on every door of every John Smith in the state of Texas? That's probably, you know, but just setting your expectations and setting what it is that is acceptable work product. Uh, outside of, you know, the industry norms and everything else. But if there's something specific that you're looking for, then put it in there. Yeah, and we see kind of in this, if you're looking at an MSA, I could see them in my sleep. They're all kind of follow a rhythm. And and that metrics that we see on the land-based MSAs is, you know, things like we'll ensure that you have qualified independent contractors or qualified landmen with certain maybe levels of certification. Um, or you'll follow best practices, or you adhe will adhere to the code of ethics of the AAPL. You know those kind of we see those things oftentimes in the um, in the that part of an MSA. Uh, they oftentimes what you have to be careful about, and we didn't have in here. It's very uh, warranted to add. You know, there's the independent contractor employee relationship. That's a big deal in our space, and. If you're not careful reading through these agreements, they'll bl plaster references to employees. You know, Dudley Land Company will ensure that said person does this and does that. And by law, Department of Labor Standards, there are things that I can't assure that a contractor is going to do, right? Mm -hmm. It is not my responsibility to monitor it. Um, and further, I cannot monitor it or I'm in violation, you know, and I'm subject to penalty and I'm treating that person like an employee instead of an independent contractor. So uh, those are real important things to to really study and make sure that you're not just signing off on because, you know, should you, if your firm is big enough, one day you're going to get be subject to an audit, Department of Labor audit, some kind of audit. Uh, they're going to look at those things and they're going to look at all your MSAs and say, well, you signed off. And they'll use it against you, I guess. If you sign 15 MSAs that say you're going to treat everybody as such, you know, that's an acknowledgement that you're treating those people as employees. So that's kind of one of the things to keep an eye out for from our perspective. Yeah. And to that end, I'll just I'll just tag on to that real quick. The difference between independent contractor and employee is is huge uh, from a from a legal perspective as well, simply because much like you're saying, you, you'll expose yourself or your company uh, w when you don't have to. That's the reason you hire independent contractors. You hire somebody that knows what they're doing and, you know, you can sort of reap the benefits of it, uh, you know, and, and but you can't control uh, it's the manner, means, and details of their work, right? So saying, I need you to go do this on this particular tract of land, that's not controlling it. If you're out there and say, okay, now you need to do this. Now go to the courthouse. Now look at these deeds. Now go talk to this person. Now do this. Like, it gets yeah. blurry. And so... You know, a little bit, you know, at the beginning, when you talk about the definitions and how things are, are defined at the beginning of the MSA, you know, make that very clear. But uh, best practices on, on my end is to not have a, you know, employee means independent contractor, borrowed servant, like all of these sort of classifications. You want to continue to be very clear about independent contractor, independent contractor, independent contractor. Yeah. And most of the MSAs are caught up with that, right? You know, companies yeah. have realized, hey, these are independent contractors. You know, I want to make that very clear. So it's, it's great. I've seen a big improvement over the last 15, 10, 15 years in that, um, that side of things, how this typically is drafted, but there's some, they'll slip some stuff in there on you. If you're not careful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, payment and billing. Ooh, yeah. this is the good one. <laughs> um, we touched on that and, and really it's, it's important. Uh, generally you want to make sure you can survive it, right? Um, we like to look at these things as 
you know, am I in compliance through my normal course of business? Right. And so if you bill every two weeks and that's standard every two weeks, you want to make sure that it says, you know, bi-monthly or bi-weekly or however it goes. Um, some of them will be a standard 30 days, you know, where you bill monthly and, you know, you may not want that. They may not fit. So you want to look at that. You want to look at your collections, you know, when they're obligated to pay, uh, depending on the type of service company you have, you may have an interest tacked on for non-payment or late payment. Um, personally, we have it in some of ours. We don't do it, but we've always got that stick, <laughs> you know, if somebody's late with payment. Uh, but you want to know what's, what's there. Uh, typically in that billing, you'll have some level of instruction too. you know, Hey, that requires you to use X system. You know, you got to submit through open invoice or you have to submit, you know, using these codes and it allows you at least kind of talking about the rules of the game. It gets that, that administrative uh, process defined, um, in your agreement. So really want to study through that. So you don't start throwing out your, your invoices, you know, for the first three or four or five months and realize you haven't collected because all your stuff's been voided. It can cause some major problems at the beginning of a project not get paid if you don't do that right. So um, yeah. from our standpoint, that's what we really try to focus on. Yeah, and a lot of them too will contain provisions that, uh, you know, even if you contest some of the work, you still got to pay for the work you don't contest and what those are and everything else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you do contest some of the work, there's a procedure that you need to go through and you've got to send an email and notification to this particular person at this particular time and you've only got, you know, so long to challenge it. Otherwise, it's, you know, considered you accepted. And there are all kinds of terms in there and everything. And you just want to be very clear about what it is. Aside from the business decision, again, I, like, I, I mean, I only see it when things go wrong, right? So there's the, that of like, okay, when things, if, if and when things go wrong, how, how, what do we do on that end? Because, you know, people will say, well, you didn't meet your obligations to properly notify us and to properly challenge that you had an issue with this invoice or anything else. So you've waived it and we, you know, so you're just out. Oh. And Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's other words to be used there that all start with, that all have four letters, but, you know, it's just a, it's just that function of make sure you know, again, what it is your responsibility is doing the work isn't, sadly, isn't always enough. You've got to know the proper protocols of using their software, putting it through their system, coding it. You've got to put an invoice number on it. You've got to put a client on it. You've got to, you know, do all of these things. Uh, and it's a little hoop jumping, but at the end of the day, it's your business. So uh, jump, my friend, you jump through the hoop. Just that's what you got to do. Eat your greens, boy. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, warranties. Um, yeah. Typically, most service agreements are you... Dudley Land Company will warrant everything. You know, you warrant this, you warrant that. And we always try to avoid it. You know, oftentimes the work, the nature of our work is it's not warranted. There are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of decisions you have to make. You know, we're, and again, I'm speaking from the land services, the landman's hat, the field landman's hat. Um, there are certain assumptions you have to make. And there are certain uncertainty in title, uncertainty in the things you might do because you're always trying to balance urgency with accuracy, um, and then cost, right? You know, you can spin your wheels and spin your wheels to try to, you know, get something perfect such that you can warrant it. Uh, but when it boils down to it, we're not attorneys, you know, that's what Oliva gives us for. They'll, they'll warrant all day. Um, they may not, but, um, you, you want to just, that's something you need to look at. You want to make sure that if it's saying you will warrant your product and you will warrant the title you do, or you won't get paid, or you're subject to even more so you're subject to damages for a mistake or a misinterpretation. That's a big deal when you're talking about a client who's drilling a $12 million well, right? Um, and so, you know, you need to be cognizant of it. You want to make sure that, you know, you've at least read through that and it's not over or unrealistically burdensome, uh, on you as a service provider. Uh, if it is, and they're not willing to change this again, it's the business risk. Yeah. You know, and to your point is, you know, some of these folks that have the same, you know, the same MSA for landmen, for folks that are providing equipment, uh, out of the well site or whatever. And so look, I can understand that in equipment, if you're providing actual equipment, why there may be some warranties that are there, right? Like, so they're going they to be up. operable and they're up. going to, you know, be up with codes, and everything, but, uh, has a, 
has it been the situation where uh, you know, a, a service provider like how you provide services, I provide services, I can't guarantee you any results. Uh, you know, I would love to. I would love to look in my magic ball and tell you I can guarantee that this is going to be the result of this case and it doesn't happen that way. The, the same way all of the things you're talking about, but has it been a company like yours that's been in that situation where they signed the you know the equipment deal and it says I I I warrant the services and the, and products that I'm going to provide and and that definition is broad enough to include it and it's gone and they weren't right and it's like well you warranted it so now it's on you uh, absolutely it's why we have jobs uh, and I said that's why I have jobs uh, and so yeah. yeah it happens all the time so just take a take a look at it and make sure that it applies to you to the extent that you can warrant anything. And I don't know that we can in, in our line of business that we can uh, warrant anything because it's not mechanical and we don't know the information that that's out there. It's like saying, I'm going to guarantee you, I'm going to drill here and, and we're going to get oil or gas. Gusher. Gotta, It'll be a yeah. gusher. <laughs> I'm not saying that landman can't guarantee. <laughs> we got to do what we got to do. But in the terms of an MSA, you want to avoid it if you can. Correct. At least if it's unrealistic. Um, let's see. Change orders. Yeah. Change orders, force majeure. I mean, so realistically in the oil and gas space, you don't see change orders very much. You know, typically, and I'm speaking just from the landman's experience, you set the general scope of work, you set the general area, you're going to do it and you go to work. You know, it's a fluid process There's, and it's great. It's, it's, you could tell it's very refined. It's a hundred years of companies and field guys working together, understanding that we're going to have to be nimble. We're going to have to adapt. Um, and it works fine where we do tend to see it is more in, in like the bigger, you know, like a right of way job. Hey, you're going to do this and it's going to, you're, you're working with an engineering firm who's, you know, set a not to exceed and they're going to receive payment, but not to exceed X. Well, you know, you may get down the line, they add six more miles of pipe or you had to do a reroute and you might need to do a change order to adjust your, your receivable amount. Um, we do unfortunately see it a lot in the renewable space. They, it's an emerging industry. They're very engineer. Uh, they're very used to dealing with, you know, construction companies and this, that, and the other on these sites and they don't provide the flexibility. So as ridiculous as it sounds, it's very common that we give a $2,000 estimate to run title on a tractor to a land and it cost us $2,500 to do it. And we have to go through a whole change order process. Um, it's a nightmare. Everybody hates it. Everybody's miserable to do it. So avoid change orders. If you can, <laughs> it when applicable, it's just really what you want to think about, you know, is this meaningful? Try to strike it if you can, just from a practicality standpoint. Um, but if it's a big enough job and you know, you're concerned about payment, maybe you want that structure. So yeah, and you just got to think about what you're doing and who your clients are. Yeah, and and uh, to that end, you know, I, I'm always a fan of something in in writing is better. Um, like a lot of these MSAs will have specific procedures about change orders and how that all looks. But you know, even if it's like, uh, hey, man, we I know we talked today, and uh, you know, uh, I appreciate now mm. instead of two thousand, it's going to be twenty five hundred dollars. Uh, send an email to that, uh, to that yeah. effect, just of a, how you do, I appreciate it. You know, like we said, you know, and you, and you guys agreed, so we're going to move forward. Uh, because when it blows up, if it blows up, then it's not, well, no, I talked to Steve and Steve said it was okay. Well, Steve's long gone, right? Steve, Steve is yeah. no longer there. And Steve I, has amnesia all of a sudden. And <laughs> if Steve is there, Steve's not going to remember that he okayed outside of his chain of command for you to continue on and everything else. Like yeah. it's again, while, while everything is going fast and furious and everybody wants to get the work done and, you know, get drilling and get pumping and everything else, man, everybody's holding hands and it's kumbaya. It's like, yeah, yeah, I got you. I got you. And you know, everything. And then as it slows down, as it always does, everybody starts looking then like, wait, if we pay $2,500 when we only agreed to two and that, that for, you know, we get involved And if there's an email, look, it doesn't follow the exact protocol of the change order. Okay. No, but it makes it much harder for me to be like, I don't know what they're talking about. Like, you know, there's, <laughs> it, it, it makes it more difficult to, to say that with an honest, with an honest face. And so, uh, even though it doesn't happen often, quick emails, uh, I have a entirely different talk and I can spend three hours on it as to why we should avoid text messages. But if that's the way you got to go to, uh, I mean, just something just quick to, to note it. 
Mm. Yeah, for sure. The next um, one is force majeure. Is there any crazy stories from that? Look, not COVID knocked that one out of the park. I mean, from, oh, yeah. from my perspective, like, look, I bet for years, years ago, yeah. Yeah. 20 years ago when I was in law school, it was like, well, what if it rains on your wedding day? Like, is that an act of God? And like, can you get out of the contract? It was like, okay. You know, I mean, it was just kind of this like theoretical, like, look, if lightning strikes and you're supposed to fix something and lightning strikes and destroys it, well, then you're excused from the contract because there's nothing there to fix anymore. Right. So that's it. But then, uh, boy, how did COVID really, really put this, you know, kind of, I don't want to say obsolete, but really got down on it and whether or not the COVID pandemic um, classified as, you know, an act of God or things beyond the control of either one of the parties that, you know, were shutting down, uh, you know, all these types of things. And so massive amounts of litigation have come out about it. Now, most of the, um, most of the MSAs that I have been reviewing, uh, that is like, if there are no other changes, there's a change to that clause that will include pandemic or epidemic, uh, and they will insert those two words into them. So, uh, um, yeah, I'm, lessons learned, I guess, of, you know, from, yeah. from COVID. You got to add that act of China language in the year. Man, let's see. Uh, so we got termination. Really, from a landman's perspective, we've hit on term and termination. Um, typically, what you see, you know, the company gets longer to, to uh, or shorter notice to fire you. You have to give them longer notice to fire them. <laughs> that's just the relationship. It's the, it's the one-sided nature of it, and that's fine. Really, the practical thing that you want to address is typically if they're going to go through a process of terminating your work order or terminating your MSA, something went wrong, right? Um, I can't say that I've ever been through the process of a termination, you know, where it got that nasty, where they terminated the service agreement. Uh, but you do want to account for things like if you, if they're going to terminate a work order and you are working for a client, that's very proper with their maintenance up there, terminating their work orders and things like that, um, that you account for demobilization. If you've got people in the field and I'm, again, I'm putting the layman's hat on. If you have people in the field and they're in North Dakota. And they moved an RV up there and, you know, are they working in the courthouse or they're doing whatever. And the client calls says, stop today. Well, like these people are, you know, yeah, I, it's going to take me an hour to call all these people you know, and, and they need to demobilize. They maybe need to secure all the commitments that they had, finish leasing, do whatever that your instructions do. So I always just try to add, you know, we'll be paid for the services rendered up to termination and any demobilization thereafter. And it, it covers you. Um, again, not a problem until it's a problem. So you just want to try to account for it. Yeah. And I, I just want to back up real quick and, and hit the liability and indemnification uh, section. It's probably oh, the yeah. it's <laughs> probably the most important uh, outside of getting paid and everything provision uh, in, in these MSAs. Um, the goal is, again, big picture is you're going to handle your business. I'm going to handle my business. I'll be responsible for what I do. You'll be responsible for what you do. Uh, and even though the concept is that simple, the wording gets horrifically mangled a lot of the times. And every time, uh, yeah. And states, uh, Texas has its own requirements. Louisiana has its own requirements. There are anti-indemnity acts, but then there are safe harbor provisions. There are all of these different things. Um, and even though folks that mean well don't always get it right, and so. Uh, if nothing else, uh, it, it's my recommendation to have somebody take a look at just that specific provision and say, does this meet with wherever we're doing the work and the requirements that we want? Uh, you know, we look at Texas ones all the time. It does this say what I think it says. It's going to have company group defined. It's going to have contractor group defined, and it's going to be you and the independent contractors and your subcontractors and their subcontractors of all tiers and affiliates. And uh, anyway, you want to make sure you know what you're signing up for. And then a lot of times with that, as Brett was talking about is, you know, there's insurance requirements. Do you have the right insurance? And you have different things. Uh, and we've sent MSAs that talk about, you know, providing for, for uh, you know, maritime and longshoremen. And they're like, well, this isn't applicable. We don't need this. Great. Cross that off. Fantastic. You know, I, I, I don't want people to have insurance they don't need to have, but I do want them to have the level that they do need to have. And what makes sense of different things. And those can get real tricky. And it is the, it's probably the, where the, I've seen the most litigation uh, come out of is on that liability and indemnification clauses. 
um, in, in MSA, then it's um, it's hugely important. So uh, I apologize for backtracking a little bit, but it's a good deal. Yeah, yeah. It is a big deal. Um, and it's a pain. It's a real, that those are the, that's the, that's like the Brussels sprouts before Brussels sprouts went through this renovation of the green. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's tough sledding there. Yeah. The simple fix. And, and it's probably about a 50, 50 roll of the dice, how um, willing our clients are willing to work with us on modifications to that language because they know it's that important. Like their legal is like, put it all on them. And we're like, I, I can't carry that. But uh, typically, you know, I'll if, if I just try to create, think of cross indemnity instead of I will be, you know, you indemnify me. It's we will indemnify each other, you know, and the other party, and just kind of really add that language so that it instead of it being pointed one way, it points both, it flows both ways, as Molly referenced, and and really that's if you kind of keep it simple, generally you can work it through. If you get too heavy with the pen, then some attorney will see it and say, well, they're working for us. <laughs> yeah. And in Texas, you actually have to write the word negligence. Like, just do it, right? There's the express negligence rule, and you, you don't, it, just make it easier. Just use the word negligence in there. That's right. You got That's it. what I got. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, there's typically, and, and you see it, uh, another thing to hit on is kind of outside of that is it might fall under miscellaneous provisions, but um, it's kind of in the same vein. I see it a lot in this part of an MSA, it's the lean language, right? And most MSAs will say, you know, you service provider will not cause a lien to be placed on, you know, my assets, right? Um, and and I get that, right? And I, it's very hard to get that out of an agreement in general. The compromise for, for us tends to be, we will not allow a justifiable lien to be placed on your assets. I need it. There's nothing stopping anyone from filing a lien on anything. That's just the reality. I can have some crazy somebody file a lien on something they have no right. As a service provider, you need to be able to at least defend, right? Um, you got to be able to defend an unjustifiable lien. You know, I need to be able to dispute it, get it waived, get it pushed out instead of being forced to settle it. Like a lot of MSAs say, I have to. They say, you shall not let a lien be filed. And therefore, it, the implications you have to settle it. Who wants to do that? You know, it may not be justified. And we've had that happen through our career, uh, through our times, a number of times, you know, some crazy, somebody files some crazy lien and we got to go, you know, get it cleaned up. Uh, so as a service provider, if you can just put language that says, you know, you have to be able to, you know, no just unjustified lien shall be filed. Typically, if they're reasonable, they'll understand that and let it go. Mm. Little note there from, from, uh, <laughs> history past experience yeah. um insurance is the big one. Oh, we went into confidentiality that's a pretty important we've touched on it we don't have to dive into it too much i don't think um most msas are going to have it 12 months after you finish working you can't disclose anything yada yada that's pretty straightforward molly probably has a tremendous amount of case law and, and litigation behind the nuance of it but from a practical standpoint as landmen um you know, you want to adhere to your code of ethics. You want to keep information confidential. And, uh, I never mark through anything in a confidentiality provision, you know, in general, going to a good faith, our business practices, keep that confidential. And if you're doing things as you should be, uh, you're not risking information getting out there, but what is always at the bottom of that for in our space is the non-compete language. Uh, it usually falls in right behind it, uh, in that paragraph. Um, and again, I touched on it earlier. Typical kind of industry standard is 12 months after you finish working. Uh, but you want to address scope. You know, you want to define what's going to create a non-compete area. And you want to define, um, you know, how that's going to look. Is it tied to the geographic area? Is it a mile outside of it? Is it five miles outside of it? Um, just you want to understand those things. And if you're running a good firm, you want to be able to monitor it. And that's the biggest thing. You want it to be concrete enough such that you can define it, track it and adhere to it. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of trust that goes into hiring a broker. And I think if you're going to sign off on that as a service provider, you need to be able to adhere to it. So, uh, you want to protect yourself from not being overly burdened for, with non-compete for, I mentioned it earlier, a short-term job, uh, a big, broad, you know, in-house staffing project. Uh, we see that all the time. We're doing a, a top secret leasing job for someone. 
but then we staff someone in house as well and they've got them working on, you know, pay decks and division orders and, and projects at a corporate level that are, you know, across entire counties. Well, you want to clarify that, um, in your non-compete set such that if I'm doing leasing for you, then I'm exclusive to you for a period of time after I'm done. But if I'm doing this broad sweeping project, well, that's not going to create a non-compete. Yeah. Courts don't, courts don't love non-competes, right? Because they want people to be able to move and, you know, work as they, as they need to and everything. But, uh, all reiterating everything that you just said, specificity, term limits, you know, what's actually you're trying to keep confidential, uh, that'll be enforced, you know, as long as it's reasonable, um, it is the big thing that the courts will uphold all of that stuff and, and hold people to that and, penalties uh can ensue if, if there's a violation so yeah just be specific and uh include a term and 12 months is is right right in the wheelhouse so right sweet spot it's the most yeah. emotional reaction that i get from clients you know it's a land as a land man you know if you're dealing with a land manager they're very aware of that you know they're very aware of like what we're hiring you to do is confidential is top secret i don't want you coming in my block so um Typically when I mark that up, it always comes with a phone call to explain why, you know, that, you know, I'm not trying to be able to go buy minerals in your area, but these are the real world circumstances that, you know, potentially I could be in violation just by going through a normal course of business. Um, so it's good to address it. Good to also talk through it with whoever you're working through so that they understand your perspective. Yeah. yeah. Dispute resolution. Basically <laughs> again, Molly could probably go for days, uh, the, the practical thing is it's, um, it's, there's not a dispute until there's a problem. And most of the time it just, uh, the reality is as a service provider, if there's a dispute, you're just not going to get paid, you know, as a, as a land man, uh, as a service provider, you, um, as a professional service provider, you can't go file a lien on someone. It's not upheld right as a land man. Uh, so it's in most MSAs, uh, Typically, I don't even mark through it. It's like, okay, is what it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, we're subject to this and you can do that. Uh, Molly can give probably a lot more detail and maybe some nuance to that. I'd love to kind of hear if I'm just glossing over this. No, uh, I, look, I mean, it, it, it's going to, again, the MSA is, a, it, it defines the, the general outward or the general framework and everything. And so look, Typically, there's arbitration provisions in there, which in in oil and gas and in other businesses as well, not not just in oil and gas. But the thought is is that if you if you can go to arbitration, there's either a you know one to three judge panel, sometimes five, uh, and they are folks that know this business, right? So you don't have to say, well, here's what an MSA is, or you know, here's what here's what a landman does. They know that. They know the business. They've they've practiced in the business. They've practiced law in the business. They they may be landmen themselves. So they know that. And so there's a there's a level of sophistication um that that's presumed there um that uh you know allows the parties to say this is what the dispute is and not start with, you know, the very, very beginning and the very basics of explaining it to the way that you may have to with a jury. Um, you know, again, pros and cons on each side, right? So uh, pros, sophisticated folks know the business, know how it works, know what actually happens as opposed to what we put on paper happens, uh, those types of things. Cons to that, they typically split the baby. Um, it's it's rare that one side is absolutely going to win and and get everything that they want, or that one side's going to win and pay zero dollars and zero cents. Does it happen? Sure, but it's the rare thing. It's like, okay, how do we? How does somebody get a little bit of everything? Um, you know, mediation is like most. Even if you go to standard litigation, you're going to go to mediation anyway. So th those aren't as typical um, things that we see. But sometimes MSAs will say we've got to go to mediation before you can file a lawsuit um, and see if we can resolve this. Look, uh, I am the biggest proponent of if you can avoid litigation, do it. Uh, I I'm here if you need me, but if you can avoid it, by all means, do it. It's costly. It's expensive. Nobody gets what they want out of the whole thing. It can ruin business relationships. Your company's tied up. Your employees are tied up. You're having to answer my phone calls and deal with this and go to hearings and, you know, all these types of things. So if you can avoid it, absolutely. So sometimes a, pre, a mediation before filing a lawsuit can be beneficial to say, look, all right, everybody cool off, back to your corners. All right, let's sit down and let's have a conversation and figure out what we can move and agree to. 
Um, and then certainly, you know, take a look at the at the jurisdiction as to where the suit's going to be filed. I mean, I can break down county by county in Texas about where are better counties, uh, but it all depends. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I'd say, great, Dallas County, Harris County, awesome, file suits there all day long. And now I'm like, nope, those juries, uh, it's, you know, they are they are pro-plaintiff juries, uh, which may be good for you uh, if, if, that's where, if that's the side you're on. Um, but they are returning very large, very high verdicts. Um, could just pay attention to that. Um, you know, in New Mexico is, uh, you know, there's some, there's some other things that, uh, you know, you may not want to be in New Mexico, depending on, um, different, uh, different reasons, if you, if you can avoid it and some other things. So, uh, you know, that, that certainly bleeds into kind of the, the, the final one, which is have somebody take a look at it. You're anybody that lawyers or anything that would take a look at it would certainly have some opinions about that um, in which which venues are, are more friendly or not. But yeah, there's some, again, avoid litigation at all costs. Avoid it, avoid it, avoid it, which I get is counterintuitive to me being a litigator in oil and gas. But uh, yeah, so well, there are other ways around such, it. that's how you charge such uh, high rates. You know, well, that's yeah, a, I mean, gotta, valuable. I, I gotta <laughs> when you're there, yeah, when you need I gotta me, make you need me. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, call me now or call me <laughs> later, right? So- that's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, they, they are important. Uh, I, I care about them, right? You guys, it's not going to affect how you guys do your, do your business and, and, you know, your services that you're providing or anything, but, but I certainly care. And if I get to, if I get to set the chess pieces a little bit beforehand, then I, that's something I want to do. Yeah. Um, that kind of leaves us, gets us down to the end. I mean, miscellaneous provisions, they're generally boilerplate stuff not anything you really need to focus on. The one thing that we we will tend to add, and again, it depends on the client and the industry that we're working in, is a non-solicitation. Um, you know, especially if, you know, I'm staffing people or it's a startup company and we're integral to actually getting up off the ground. Um, typically, you're, you're going to put one of your better people. You're going to, maybe someone you've invested a lot of time and money into developing and, um, you just want to say that you can't just go hire all my people. I'm not here to be a staffing company for you. I'm not charging you staffing rates. This is not a staffing arrangement. So I try to add that. Um, some industries, it's a little more important than others. I don't want to point fingers and name names, but uh, if you're in an industry where your your people are valuable and the expertise that you're bringing to the table is valuable, uh, you want to make sure that you're just not leaving an open door. And if you feel like it might be a scenario where they might want to pull your people or hire your people, um, you might want to consider, you know, adding that kind of language that says, okay, if you're going to hire someone, this is what you put will pay me for that person. Just like you would see in it, see in any kind of staffing arrangement, we'll use a staffing company. Uh, so you can find a, a, a billion examples of language, uh, on the internet for that, but it's a consideration. And, and we do add that to all of our service agreements in certain spaces to just to ensure that if, if you're going to poach somebody from me, you're going to pay the price. Uh, because we, you know, as a service provider, you invest a lot of time and money in finding these people and cultivating them and keeping them busy and developing them. Uh, so you want to protect your assets as a service provider. Sure. Uh, then you mm -hmm. get down to the schedule of attachments. Typically what we see in schedules and we've touched on all this is the insurance requirements. Again, we'll flip through that. Typically there's going to be eight or 10 different types of insurances on some of the bigger MSAs. Most times you can strike them through, strike them out. If it's something that doesn't apply as a landman, you don't need to have, uh, you, you know, intercontinental oceaneering ship maintenance insurance, you know, I mean, watercraft, uh, watercraft is a big one. Watercraft too. is the best yeah. one. Yeah. Unless you're, unless you're going to be bass fishing while you bill in a day rate, you don't need <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> so typical, you know, what we see as standard is, you know, general liability, workman's compensation insurance. Uh, auto insurance. Um, you see some ENO, you know, professional liability insurance requirements more and more. Uh, don't get me on my rant about that <laughs> as a landman, but it's what it is. Um, so you'll see those things. Those are typical and standard. You just want to make sure you have enough to cover that, uh, whatever the requirements are. And, and I would say from a practical standpoint, if it's some absurd amount, you know, $10 million and you strike it out to 5 million of general liability, um, or umbrella policy or whatever it might be, most of the times they'll work with that, you know? Uh, so 
have a little freedom there. And then the rest of uh, the other exhibits that we tend to see are the work orders. And that's where really the, that's where your rates are set out. That's where your expense and reimbursement policy is. Um, I can say of all the years that I've been doing this and all the clients that we work for, that when things go south, it's because of the work order. It's because of the rate schedule, it's because of the expense and reimbursement policy in the rates in that work order and your maybe compliance or not compliance with it. Um, that's where it gets you. It's always in that, those things that are, you said this and you did that, um, in our space. Right. Uh, so I put a ton of emphasis on it. We have a whole process where we sign an MSA. This is the rate schedule. This is, this is that it goes straight to someone. It goes in the system so that, you know, we adhere to that. Do things fall through the cracks? Absolutely. Most of the time when it falls through the cracks is because you're moving people on and off of jobs. You're cycling from one project to another. You're, you maybe started the project or the relationship with your client as a field landman doing title. And then they hire you to do due diligence and you got to bring in an in-house landman whose day rate is a hundred dollars higher. And then the, the, the hectic chaos of providing your services, you know, you put that person on there and all of a sudden you're out of compliance, right? Um, and that company a year later or six months later does an audit and Dudley was billing a hundred dollars a day for this person more than they were authorized to do. Well, it's not that you were cheating the system. It's just, you got caught up in doing the work. So, um, pay attention to it. The expense reimbursement is a big deal. I've had clients, I've had 10 year relationships with clients go south because, you know, we build a 20 man job at $35 meal reimbursement instead of 25. Um, or we were trucking people, sending people to some remote place and we build more mobilization miles than we should have. It's those little things that'll just kill you. And I'm super passionate about it because I had it happen last week <laughs> on a, on a job, um, a pipeline project where, you know, pipeline job for typical upstream, you know, exploration and development client that we had, and they need us to do a pipeline. So we put pipeline hats on, we put pipeline project managers on it at right of way agents on it. And they rolled under their normal course of business for billing using a per diem as opposed to $30 a day for meals. And you can only bill X amount of miles to get to the, the job site and you can't bill for weekends and all these things in our work order that were specific to a certain type of work that we blew through and just cracked the ball and, and didn't adhere to that because we put a different hat on. So, uh, things went South client was all pissed off and upset at us and you know, I had to eat crow. So yeah, you know what? We, we botched it. We were operating within industry standards for right of way, but that's not what our MSA read. And that's not what the work order read. It ended up costing us a lot of money, cost my landmen a lot of money. You know, we all had to eat a little bit, take a haircut and it could have very much been avoidable. Um, so the parting yeah. advice for all my broker buddies out there, maybe I shouldn't give this advice, just have them screwed up. And tell <laughs> us, but no, it's that's important. a yeah, it's a good lesson learned. And, you know, it, it, it was so much of these things of, you know, unfortunately, sometimes these things got to go wrong until you get them right a little bit. And, you know, I, I mean, it's one of those things I'm sure you're never going to make that mistake again. And it's the first, the second pipeline enters, you're like, okay, hang on, Mike. And now, you know, it, it's all going to be. What toots mass. Yeah. It happened. Yeah. But it just happens. You know, it's those little things. And, I guess to put a bow on this whole thing is you want to go through these agreements as from our perspective, um, trying to make sure that you can live by it through your normal course of business. You don't want to live by exception. If you're working for multiple clients, you don't want to have to think one way for this client and think that way for another, uh, try to get it as streamlined with how you tend to operate as, as, um, as you can and rock and roll and pay attention to it. That's important. Well, and, yeah. And, and from my perspective, right, I'm the fun police, uh, right? So you guys just want to get work and go out there and get it, you know, get guys on the job, get, get it going, get paid. And, you know, what can you do from a business perspective? Uh, and, and that's the way you're looking at it. I, send it to me. I'll take a look at it and let you know, all right, when all this goes south, if this goes south, here's what's going to happen. And here's some other things. Can you live with it? Can you not live with it? And are you protected? And so that, you know, it's if, if and when things do go wrong it's it's that so yeah I, i'll read all the provisions you don't want to read you want to read the ones of what do, what do i have to do and how much am i going to get paid and and i'll read all the other ones in between to make sure that that that's all taken care of that's right molly do y'all have um 
at Oliva Gibbs, do you have a standard kind of boilerplate? Can people reach out to y'all for maybe if they need something to start or maybe want you guys to review their standard agreement? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it, we do it fairly regularly. We can, if, if you are presented with an MSA and you're like, I just want somebody to take a look at it, shoot it over to us. We'll take a look at it. Um, and you know, we've got other clients that say, look, I, I just want to, I'm just going to start over with our MSAs and every vendor that we deal with, let's put together something that works for us, uh, and, and get it out to them. And they're in that three to five year cycle. Uh, and so they're, they're doing it kind of soup to nuts, but yeah, wherever you are in the process, um, we certainly can help out and, and take a look at all these things and, and guide you through that process. Cause it, it can be a little daunting. Well, thank you so much, Molly, for joining us, for sharing all about MSAs. Uh, we'll link to that article, Navigating uh, the Master Service Agreement, and also you can get in touch through oglawyers.com. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, thanks for being on the land Greatest department. Greatest website name of all time, by the way. <laughs> you have the coolest lawyer name. <laughs> As a kid from the 90s, you know, like. <laughs> awesome. Great. Thank, thank you, you Molly. Really, of course. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Land Department. Check out our website in the show notes or visit dudley-land.com to learn more about us.